Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 7 of the podcast. Thank you for coming back. I'm your host, Ali, and I invite you all to sit and psych for a while. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like me to discuss on the podcast, please email me directly or reach out to me via social media on Facebook and Twitter. Also, make sure you subscribe that we don't miss any important information regarding upcoming episode release dates. In today's episode, we'll be talking about neurodevelopmental disorders. This will be one of two parts. Today's episode will talk about intellectual disabilities and specific learning disorders. In part two, we'll talk about autism spectrum disorder and attention deficit hyperactive disorder, ADHD. Today, we'll also have a special guest, Dan Novak, a fellow colleague and coworker who will be talking about intellectual disabilities and working with individuals with intellectual disabilities in a counseling setting. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy the show. Specific learning disorders are difficulties with learning and using academic skills. It has a prevalence of about 5 to 15% among school-aged children and approximately 4% among adults. And these are difficulties that would continue even after six months of interventions to help that individual improve those areas of learning. And they can be experiencing difficulties in one or more areas of learning. Number one is reading. So you can notice that they're reading inaccurately or they're reading slowly. This is known as dyslexia. We can see that maybe they're hesitating when reading some words or they're guessing words frequently while reading. There's some difficulties sounding out some words. Other issues can be understanding what they're reading. So they're reading correctly, but they're not necessarily understanding or processing or making connections while they're reading. They're not comprehending the deeper meaning of what is being read. There are difficulties with spelling. So you will see maybe they're adding letters or they're emitting letters or substituting different letters when writing a word. There are difficulties with writing. So grammatical errors, punctuation errors, or when they're writing, they're They're exhibiting poor organization skills. There's a difficulty conveying or getting their point across. There's a lack of clarity in their ideas and just how they order their sentences and paragraphs. There's a difficulty with mastering a sense of numbers, uh, number facts or calculations. This is called dyscalculia. So they're having troubles understanding numbers, the significance of numbers, their relationships. They're having trouble performing arithmetic procedures. So maybe they're switching around the order, not doing things in the right order. They're using their fingers to count instead of using mental math or recall math. There can also be difficulties with mathematical reasoning. So we can see they're having trouble with applying mathematical concepts. They could be having difficulties applying mathematical procedures to solve quantitative problems. So applying math in a practical matter, whether it's at the store, at home, or at school. 
These learning disorders typically indicate that the individual's academic skills in that area are just not meeting the expectations of their chronological age. They can cause adverse effects on their academic or even occupational performance. They can also affect their personal lives. Uh, they begin during school age but can go unnoticed and may not be apparent until the demands of that area of learning exceed that individual's capacity. So for example, if they begin taking uh, time tests or they're reading or writing complex reports under pressure or they just are overworked, they have too much work to do and their ability to manage all that becomes insufficient. Learning disorders are categorized in regards to the severity and the area that is affected. In terms of severity, there is mild, moderate, and severe. In mild, one or two areas are affected in a mild way, but through accommodations and support services that individual can compensate and function well. With moderate, one or more areas are affected markedly, but the individual through intensive and specialized teaching can become proficient and accommodations and support services may be needed to compensate for that learning disorder. With severe, several areas are affected severely and skills can't be learned without that ongoing individualized intensive specialized teaching, especially during their school years. Accommodations and support services may not be enough for the individual to complete their work efficiently. Accommodations and support services can look like a lot of things. It can be providing the book on audio, having the book in large print, for example, having someone that reads the book orally to the individual, having the individual respond their answers in a verbal response as opposed to a written response, giving them the option to take frequent breaks or extended time for a test allowing them to have a different type of seat or a different kind of test-taking environment that can accommodate for their learning disorder. Learning disorders can sometimes be misdiagnosed as other neurodevelopmental disorders such as attention deficit hyperactive disorder, ADHD, attention deficit disorder, ADD, or an intellectual disability or they can be underdiagnosed due to the varying range of their academic performance. So for example, if they're doing well in all but one of their areas of learning, it can go unnoticed because of their performance overall. It's not uncommon to see individuals who struggle with a learning disorder to also be struggling with anxiety or depression or also have an attention deficit disorder or an attention deficit hyperactive disorder. And it's typically critical that these learning disorders are recognized early on in the individual's life, especially during their school years where interventions can be put in place to help accommodate their needs or help them learn different ways of working with their learning disorder so that they are prepared for work life and higher education. And this responsibility typically falls on the school or the teacher who can begin to recognize or notice if the student or the individual's performance starts to fall back behind other students in their age group or if they're starting to experience a lot of difficulties with more complex materials. Clear communication and cooperation between 
that student, the teachers with the school, and the parents is key in ensuring that these issues are recognized earlier on and the appropriate interventions are put in place to support that student in the very important developmental stage of their life. So for this next segment, joining us will be Dan Novak, a colleague and a fellow co-worker, and he'll be joining the conversation about intellectual disabilities. Dan, could you please introduce yourself? Good afternoon, Ali. Thanks for having me on the show. been practicing for about a year. I've done a lot of work in addiction, some work in anxiety, depression. I've also done some work with individuals with intellectual disabilities, so I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you for being with us. Intellectual disabilities typically occur during the onset of a developmental period. They affect six per 1,000 people. The intellectual adaptive functioning is typically where we see a lot of difficulties occurring for those individuals. So the social, conceptual, and practical demands of life are what we typically look at to measure the severity of the intellectual disability that the individual is struggling with. So Dan, based on the criteria of the intellectual and adaptive difficulties, what are some things that we can look for? Okay, some of the criteria that we look for are difficulties with reasoning, there may be difficulties with problem solving, planning, some judgment, Uh, there's also difficulties in abstract thinking, there's some difficulties in both academic learning, which would be like school learning, and then difficulties in experiential learning, which would be learning from life's experiences. And in terms of the adaptive difficulties, what can we look for? Uh, The inability to meet developmental and social cultural standards. They have trouble achieving personal independence and responsibility. They basically have trouble living on their own. Okay. The severity of the disability is based on the adaptive functioning. So how much support that individual needs to accomplish a certain task. And as with many other mental health or neurodevelopmental disorders, they're split up into categories or severities. So mild, moderate, severe, and profound. And in the case of intellectual disabilities, IQ tests are sometimes just not enough. Why is that? Just as with other college aptitude tests, there are other factors that go in to determine whether somebody is intellectually disabled or not. It's circumstances, it may be testing factors, how they felt on that day. So we really have to look at the person as a whole, not just their test score. So in the case of intellectual disabilities, it may not just be the IQ score that determines if someone is intellectually disabled, but Sometimes a lot of other things have to play a role, like real-life situations that the IQ test may not simulate for that person, and how they just are able to adapt to everyday situations. In regards to the conceptual domain, what are some things that we can observe in individuals who may or may not have an intellectual disability? Some things may be pretty overt, some things may be not noticeable in the beginning. What are those criteria? So as you noted, Ali, for preschool age students, it may not be easy to notice some of these. When we get into the later years when kids are actually in school, it may be reading, writing, arithmetic, or even money-related issues that we pick up on. And similarly with adults, there may be difficulties with abstract thinking. 
executive functioning, short-term memory issues, and other academic skills may be impacted for adults. And in terms of the social domain, we may see a degree of social immaturity. There's trouble reading social cues of others, there's trouble with communication, both the non-verbal and verbal, trouble conversing with other people compared to people in their age group. And the language may be more concrete and less complex. You can also observe difficulties with emotional and, and behavioral regulation that can sometimes result in adverse outcomes or conflicts. There's also a limited judgment of risk within certain situations. So sometimes not being able to assess how risky a situation is and acting without really considering how things can turn out and that sometimes can lead to adverse outcomes. So Dan, in terms of the practical domain of life, what are some of the criteria or difficulties that we can observe in these individuals? There may be varying degrees of support needed to maintain daily life activities. The individual may not even know what they don't know. There may be help needed with personal care. There may need help with complex tasks ranging from shopping, transportation, health-related decisions, money-related decisions. Legal decisions are often hard for them to comprehend. Another area they may need help is in finding employment or completing household tasks. Based on the criteria of the conceptual, social, and practical domains of life, we can really see how the severity can be reflective of the amount of support needed to complete tasks in each, each of those domains and the ability of, to function in those three domains. When we look at in mild severity, some support is required to maintain functionality within some of the daily complex tasks. There is some independence, there is some support needed in academics to keep up with age-related expectations. There are some difficulties in social relationships, in emotional and behavioral regulation, and just being able to manage everyday life. When it comes to moderate, how do these severities change? So some of the difficulties become more prevalent, more prominent with academia, work, personal life. Support goes from maybe being checking in from time to time to where it's more day-to-day -day tasks that they would need help with. Social difficulties are also more prominent. They may have trouble communicating. They may have limited social circles. They may have difficulties picking up on social cues, making decisions. And again, judgment may play a part in all of this. Some independence can be gained in self-care, but through extended periods of support and learning which are, are needed to get there. Same for day-to-day -day tasks at home, work, and personal life. To maintain progress, they're going to need more hands-on day-to-day help going through these things. The, the next category we look at is the category of severe. This is where more extensive care is needed. They may have a limited capacity for conceptual skills, limited understanding of written word. Again, concepts of money, time, and amounts, and numbers are, are difficult for them to handle. Speech is quite limited, both in terms of language and in relation to situations at hand. Understanding of communication, nonverbal and verbal, may be difficult for them. Support is required for daily living functions and self-care. Supervision and support are needed in decision-making in practical situations at home. Recreation and work are also, they may need help in areas of planning, getting together with friends. Maladaptive behaviors and self-injury are more likely to occur. What are we likely to see in terms of the criteria for someone who is in the profound level of severity? So what we're looking at here is conceptual skills are limited to the physical world. Some skills such as matching and sorting can be learned, but it may be very, very difficult. 
uh, limited understanding of communication beyond simple commands. They may have trouble understanding gestures, personal expression through nonverbal and verbal means may be difficult for them. They may be dependent on others for every need from day-to-day -day functioning. So this is no longer some hand-holding along the way. This is they need help through every step of the day. They're very limited on doing simple tasks and there may be sensory and physical impairments that may interfere with social activities. In the past, we've talked about how individuals that struggle with mental health issues, whether it's addiction or anxiety or depression, can also be struggling with another mental health issue. So in the case of neurodevelopmental disorders, and more specifically, intellectual disabilities, what are some of the other mental health issues that can be comorbid with that disorder? Individuals with intellectual disabilities struggle with the same mental issues that those of us who don't have intellectual disabilities struggle with. They have issues with depression, anxiety, they may suffer from PTSD, they may have addiction issues. Just about anything that would impact somebody who doesn't have an intellectual disability can impact somebody who does have an intellectual disability. Can having the intellectual disability affect how the individual processes and, and the difficulty experienced in dealing with those issues? Uh, yes, it can. Uh, a lot of times individuals with intellectual disability may have trouble expressing themselves, especially in therapy. They may have trouble describing how they're feeling. They may have trouble identifying their own personal feelings. They may struggle with communication. It also may be difficult for us as therapists to diagnose some of their challenges. Some of the mental illness such as depression and anxiety may present slightly different in somebody who has an intellectual disability. So it can complicate it on both ends, both from the client and from the therapist's end. So Dan, when you say that there are some difficulties on both the clinician and the client, and especially with someone who is struggling with an intellectual disability, what are some things that we as clinicians can consider or take into account when working with them? So some of the things we need to consider is the person's concept of time. When we ask them, how are you feeling now? They may be confusing how they're feeling now with how they felt when they woke up that morning. They may be confusing it with how they felt a couple days ago. Same thing when we ask them when something happened. It, their concept of when it happened may get a little blurred in their mind, so it may be hard to track the day-to-day -day events of how their life's playing out. Another thing we have to consider is the use of language. A lot of time individuals with intellectual disabilities don't understand metaphors, so don't try to overcomplicate your examples or anything you may be sharing with them. Another thing to keep in mind is individuals with intellectual disabilities, and this kind of relates to the metaphor example, they may be overly agreeable when they don't understand what's going on or something you're asking. So they may be nodding or saying yes to a lot of things that they really don't understand. So there's a lot of need for circling back and really double checking that the person you're working with is understanding the questions you're asking and you know what, what you're trying to help them with or, or discuss with them. Just as they need support with other day-to-day -day tasks, it may be important to take into consideration their level of functioning in those domains of life to tailor your treatment for them. And I imagine that just as with any 
other client that you work with, you have to establish a rapport with them. Is that something that you feel is also important? That is correct. And a lot of times individuals with intellectual disabilities are distrusting of individuals in authority, and they're, they're going to see you as an authority figure. They may have been abused by the system. They may have been abused by loved ones, by people who have cared for them. So gaining their trust is almost more important than working with somebody who doesn't have an intellectual disability. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it can be a huge part of them getting to trust you early on and actually opening up and sharing with you. What are some considerations that we have to take into account when working with someone who has an intellectual disability? Are there other individuals that we have to work with when working with that individual? Yeah, this is a question I had to actually do some investigating on myself. There's what's known as guardianship. Guardian is a person, institution, or agency appointed by probate court to manage the affairs of another person called the ward. And within guardianship, there are two forms. There's limited guardianship, which is the power to make decisions about personal care and personal finances. It's more of a limited guardianship. So when you say a limited guardianship, would the severity of the individual's intellectual disability play a role in that? That is correct, but that would be not up to the individual or the guardians. That would be up to the court. The other form of guardianship is plenary guardianship, and this is a more all-encompassing guardianship. This gives the person the ability to make decisions about all aspects of the ward's life. And again, is this something that we would see with individuals of severe and profound severities in intellectual disability? Correct. This is where somebody who has limited ability to take care of themselves on a day-to-day -day functioning ability would have a guardianship of that level. Even in a plenary guardianship, we can see that the guardian may have an all-encompassing control of the individual. But I guess what are some things that they can't really control or they can't really make a decision in regards to? So all guardians are limited in things they can do regardless of the, the level of guardianship. A guardian cannot change a ward's behavior. Or they cannot force a ward to take medication they don't want to take. They cannot force a ward to stay within a facility they don't want to stay in. They cannot force them to stay in any kind of psychiatric hospital if that ward does not agree. The guardian cannot prevent the ward from marrying, divorcing, getting a driver's license, voting, basically anything that ward wants to do to help improve himself personally. They can't limit that. In the event that you are working with someone who has an intellectual disability and has a guardian, how do you maintain boundaries between both individuals as to not affect your relationship with that client? That's a great question, and this can be difficult, but I compare it to working with a child or anybody who's under the age of 18. You do want to keep the parent or the guardian involved, but you also want to explain to them that allowing whether it's their child or an adult with an intellectual disability that they're working with, a certain level of privacy to allow the therapeutic process to take place. You can definitely clarify with them that if there are any safety issues or any kind of medical concerns or anything that would need their immediate attention, be it some sort of drug use, that you would you know involve them, but you don't want to involve them on the day-to-day -day activities of therapy. You want to allow for that privacy. Very interesting. As with other mental health issues or neurodevelopmental issues, sometimes the individuals struggling with them can be seen as an invisible minority in where people around them don't necessarily know what they're going through, but they are still suffering and it goes unnoticed. So in the case of an intellectual disability, how does someone who is struggling with that fall into that category of being in the invisible minority. 
I look at this from the standpoint of just kind of day-to-day -day life. I think individuals with intellectual disabilities, when we see them in the world, we're afraid to approach them, we're afraid to talk to them, we're afraid how they're going to respond back towards us. I've seen people, you know, when there's a, somebody with an intellectual disability working in a restaurant or something, the customer they're working with is reluctant to treat them as a human. And I think that's really the answer to all this. And I think if you look into people who have spoken on this with intellectual disabilities, one of the, the biggest things they'll say is just treat me as a human. Treat me as a person. Treat me as you would treat anybody else. And when it comes to having somebody walk through your door that's got an intellectual disability, I would encourage you to keep that in mind, that this is just another human. Don't see them for their disability. Don't see them for you know what they struggle with. See them as a human and treat them as such. Going off that same idea of treating people with intellectual disabilities as human, there are support groups out there. There's an organization known as the ARC. I think most people have heard of the Special Olympics. There's an organization known as the Friendship Circle. And then another support group, group is Parents Helping Parents. And again, this is another area I think that's underdeveloped in the therapy world is support for parents who have children or older adults with intellectual disabilities because they also run into some of the same challenges we've kind of touched on today dealing with their child or older adult and how the world is treating them. Thank you so much for sharing that information with us, Dan. And again, thank you so much for being on the episode today. I do appreciate the time and knowledge that you have shared with us. Thank you for having me. It's, this is a topic that's been very dear to my heart, so I'm glad that you were able to have me on and talk about it. It's been my pleasure. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the end of Episode 7. Again, a special thanks to Dan for being on the show today, and special thanks to you for listening and coming back. As always, please make sure you're following us on Twitter and Facebook. If you ever have any topics or questions you would like me to address on the podcast, you can also email me directly or just via those social platforms and also make sure you're subscribed that we don't miss any important information regarding episode release dates thank you for coming by and i'll see you next time